Hello, I'm Anthony Scaramucci, and this is Open Book, where I talk with some of the brightest minds out there about everything surrounding the written word, from authors and historians to figures in entertainment, neuroscientists, political activists, and of course, Wall Street. Sorry, I can't resist. Before we get into today's episode, if you haven't already, please hit follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. We all love a review, even the bad ones. I want to hear the parts you're enjoying or how we can do better. You know I can roll with the punches, so let me know. Anyways, let's get to it. If America is heading in the wrong direction, what do we need to do to fix it? How should we tackle China? What needs to be done to fix our economy? The questions go on. Ultimately, we have a duty to our country and we need to act. My guest today, David McCormick, has a plan. So joining us now on Open Book, a dear friend and just an incredible all-around person, David H. McCormick, a best-selling author, among many other things in his life. He's the former CEO of Bridgewater Associates, a candidate for the U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania, a great conservative leader, an author of the new bestseller, which was a great read, Superpower in Peril, A Battle Plan to Renew America. There's so many great things in this book, David, and of course, it's great to have you here. But first of all, I want to talk about your background because I think it's so interesting. You're born in Washington. You use wrestling as a path to get into military, but you also spent a good part of your life in Pennsylvania on a Christmas tree farm. Take us back for a moment before we get into superpower in peril. Hey, Anthony, thanks for having me. It's uh, gr great to be with you. And yeah, I was born, as you said, I was born in Washington, Pennsylvania, right outside of Pittsburgh. And I grew up in northeastern Pennsylvania, outside of Scranton. And uh, my folks had a, a farm, a small farm. And we had Christmas trees on the farm. And my, my dad worked at the college, uh, local college. And, uh, you know, it was a great rural upbringing. It's the kind of place that on the Monday after Thanksgiving, the entire school would be shut down because it was the first day of deer season. And uh, we uh, baled hay and trimmed Christmas trees. And, and sports got me into West Point, and, and that was the path to uh, the Army. All right, what was the weight class, David? Okay, share with all of your uh, fans out here. What was your weight class in high school? 155 in high school, 167 in college. Okay, God bless. Okay, I haven't seen those numbers since 1980, by the way, <laughs> just so you know, okay? I mean, my, maybe you have to divide by two for me to get to one of those numbers. But so, you know, Scranton, obviously, I don't know if you know this about me, I, my family's from Plains, PA. My dad went to, you know, he was, you know, that's sort of in that triangle, Hazleton, Wilkesbury, yeah. Scranton. And so, you know, I used to spend all my summers out there. I've been up to Harvey's Lake. I learned how to water ski there. You know, we've had guns in our family my whole life because of that. The Friday after Thanksgiving was a big deal for us. We were, you know, four o'clock in the morning, we were pushing deer. Sort of yeah. always found that bizarre. We were walking towards the other hunters as we were pushing the deer. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, right. I'm going to get killed. He's like, relax. These people are not going to shoot you. You know, you had yeah. that orange uh, uh, vest on. But anyway, I get the upbringing. But why the military, David? Why, uh, you know, you had good academic background. Why go into the military? Because we're roughly the same vintage. My dad was in the Army and implored me not to go in the Army. So, some days I regret that when I registered for the Selective Service. Obviously, I didn't get drafted, so I didn't volunteer, but you did. Tell us why. 
You know, it it, uh, it was a little bit in, uh, an indirect way. I got recruited to play football and wrestle at, at West Point, and I didn't want to go. I, you know, we didn't have any uh, family uh, in the military, any immediate family. And my dad said, apply, just apply. That's, uh, you can make your own choice, but just apply. I was, I had dreams of being a Penn State football player. And I applied and I got in. And then what happened is my small town just embraced this. It almost became a done deal because nobody had gone to the academies for years, uh, decades really. And, uh, and, and so I really started to think seriously about it and went. And this was just in the beginning, Anthony, of the, you know, the coming back of the military under Ronald Reagan. And so I, I went to West Point in 1983, and that was the beginning of Morning in America. And the military, which had been in really rough shape after Vietnam, was on this rise. And I became part of uh, what uh, was the most admired institution in America. And if you remember those days, you and I are old enough to remember Lee Greenwood, proud to be an American. That was the song of, of the day. And it was a it was a great awakening. Yeah, listen, he he created an American renewal in our youth. I think we both fell in love with Reagan. I think he's the reason why uh, I'm a Republican. There's another weird fact about my life. My dad's union was controlled by the Republican Party in Nassau County. It was like an obscure thing. There were probably three counties in the United States where unions were controlled by Republicans. So when I signed up for the draft and registered to vote, my dad insisted that I register as a Republican. But then once Reagan came into office, it became very easy to be a Republican. Right. It's a little harder to be a Republican now, David. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I've read some of your Wall Street Journal editorials, which are fabulous. Look, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of yours because I think you see the world clearly. You're an American patriot. You love the country. You've written about some of the erosion, our recruiting efforts in the military, and some of the cultural things that we need to think about from a civic point of view. But let me start there for a second. Where is the Republican Party right now? Is Trump right? Trump says that the Reagan Republican Party is dead and it's over. It's now an American first working class party. And you better embrace that and forget everything else about former Republicanism. Is he right, David, or is he wrong? Or what say you about the future of the Republican Party? Yeah, well, that was, you know, that that was really the purpose of writing the book. Uh, Superpower and Peril really addresses that question of what is conservatism today. And it, it starts with a recognition uh, that I and I saw this in Pennsylvania on the campaign trail, Anthony, every VFW, every diner, every fire hall, that the American dream and, and what we know about America has not been available for many, many millions of Americans, and they're angry. So the economy uh, is in decline, uh, $31 trillion of debt, record high inflation, the ability to be born into one socioeconomic class and get to the next, much, much, much more difficult. We're being challenged by China globally. And then this spiritual decline, Anthony, which I talk about, the progressiveness that's chipping away at our institutions, our schools, our military. The, the Army had a climate change strategy under, under President Biden before it had a war fighting strategy. So all of that is leading 80 percent of Americans to think the country's headed in the wrong direction, 75 percent living month to month, uh, two thirds thinking their kids aren't going to be better off than they are. So let's start with that, because that, in my mind, explains a lot of President Trump's success in 2016, because he tapped into that anger. And what I say in the book is that, listen, the Republican Party was sleepwalking uh, when we were talking about China and, and globalization and open markets and free trade and open borders. We weren't really understanding what that was doing to Americans. So President Trump uh, is right, in my opinion, and the populist pulse is right in terms of, of addressing those problems and making sure the American dreams are right, uh, available for everyone. 
at the same time, there's core conservative principles that uh, I believe as a country and as a party, we should remain true to. Small government. Uh, America's exceptional. Uh, the role of government should be limited. Uh, America's leadership in the world is critical uh, to protecting our, our liberty at home. These are basic premises. And so what I try to lay, lay out in the book is an agenda that reflects those traditional conservative principles, but also is adjusted uh, to reflect the challenges of our time and, and to make sure the American dream is available for everyone. Are there enough people, David, in the Republican Party I mean, look, you got me. I mean, that's exactly when I read your book, I'm like, this is exactly where I live from a spiritual, philosophical view in terms of where we need to go directionally. Um, I love your long term thinking. We are lacking public servants that have long term thinking. You're talking about a long term plan to renew America, to return to its super status power and to restore pride that our fellow Americans have in America. Um but I'm wondering about the fracture. I'm wondering about what you just said. We we took families that you and I grew up with that were aspirational, working class aspirational families. We turned them into economically desperational families. I'm wondering, you know, if there's just too many now, have we fractured this thing or is yeah. there a way to knit it back together? And how do we do that, sir? Yeah, I, th I think we do. Uh, I think there is a, a way to knit it back together. I mean, that the book is very stark. You showed the cover. It's like these red, bold letters, superpower and peril. That's because I think we are. We're at a, a tipping point. But it's also an optimistic book, uh, as, uh, as you mentioned. And the reason it's optimistic is because this is the American story. We get to the edge of the cliff. We pull ourselves back. We've, we've had incredible moments of fracture and divide in our country where the future looked very, very uncertain. And and we've been able to renew ourselves and continue to be uh, the great uh, America that we all love. And that happened in my lifetime. It happened in your lifetime, Anthony. We were just talking about Reagan, but let's take a minute on it. So uh, 1979, I remember it uh, well. I was 14, uh, going on 15, and uh, stagflation, 15% inflation, the economy's in recession. We had gas prices that were through the roof. We had odd days and even days for gas. You had to be an odd day or an even day. I remember standing in the gas lines with my dad or in the gas lines in our Country Squire, which was a station wagon with a, like a half a block long with wood on the side. We had Desert One where we lost eight service members on the sands of Iran trying to rescue our hostages under, under President Carter. And 80% uh, of Americans, just like today, thought the country was headed in the wrong direction. Incredibly divisive moment. Four years later, I'm at West Point. I'm walking along those beautiful pathways. I'm in the Hudson Valley looking down over that incredible uh, point, which uh, was so critical in the Revolutionary War. And it's morning in America. The economy's on fire. Uh, inflation's in check. We're in the middle of a military buildup, which ends the Cold War six years later without a shot. American confidence is on the rise. You could feel it in the air. That's leadership. That's forward-looking leadership. So I think at this moment, we have to look forward, not backward. I think we need leaders who are, who are, who are first and foremost about America and look looking forward above self. And uh, I'm optimistic that in these moments of crisis uh, that we'll find our way through it. And that's what uh, that's what I'm, I'm trying to do with this book is to, to at least help the conversation by painting a path. OK, I mean, it's brilliant stuff. But we now have a guy on the stage, Donald Trump, 
He's given me a hard time in life. He's given you a little bit of a hard time. Okay. He said he has said way worse about me than you. Okay. Although you are a nicer person than me. I fight back with the son of a bitch. I call him the fattest president since William Howard Taft and, you know, just to irritate him, but you don't. But he says that you are Wall Street, not Main Street. He says you're soft on China, not tough on China. You're a globalist, not America first. Weak, not a fighter. He said that you, this is pissing me off about him. You were, you were in the military, a combat veteran. He had bone spurs. That doesn't make it to the military, but you're weak, not a fighter. Okay. Okay, and you'll fold like the other establishment Republicans. Okay, now I mean it's a bunch of bullshit. We both know that. Okay, but his bullshit is very effective, David. So how do you respond to that? Are you going to stay in the political theater? Uh, obviously, I hope you do. I'm hoping this book is a precursor to that. But how do you combat him where other politicians have had not success combating that sort of nonsense that he's spewing? Well, you know, listen, and, and the thing you learn, the thing you learn in plea boxing, the, you know, the mandatory class is plea boxing. And there was this old boxing coach named Herb Creighton. It's kind of like Mickey on, on, on Rocky. And the first thing he says is you, you can't win unless you're willing to get punched in the face. And that's that's modern day politics. You got to be in the arena. You got to be in the ring. And so, you know, when you get in the ring, I had lots of people say bad things about me when I was in the ring and you have to fight through it. And so in the book, uh, I talk about the, what you just described and and I essentially just just tell the story. I defend myself and say, this is what I am. And uh, and I'll always do that. I'll always stand stand true and fight for what I believe in. And uh, and I think that's what's required in this moment. I think if all the people um, who have been successful in life, you know, by, by the way, the founders didn't think that we were going to have career politicians. They thought people uh, like like me would go out and have successful careers and then come come back and serve. If people are afraid to be in the ring because they're going to get a mean thing said about them or, or thrown at them, then I think we're, we're lost because the country's not going to have yeah, the right people. I, I, I agree with that. I mean, listen, I what other people think of you is none of your business. We have to teach our children that, particularly in the age of social media. Otherwise, you know, the, the bullying and all that nonsense. But let me rephrase the question, okay? We are selecting our leaders through a popularity contest now that has elements of reality television, this is no longer a hiring decision, okay? As an example, you know, John Kennedy and Richard Nixon in their debates were talking about Kimoy and Matsu, which are two small islands off of Taiwan, and whether the United States would defend those two islands in an attack on Taiwan from communist China, okay? And the level of detail in the debate was extraordinary. Now we're talking about tired this, low energy that. How do you how do you how do you get how do you get through that with somebody with your policy background and your chops? How do you get through that, David? You know, I just think authentically, honestly, with 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 honesty. So uh, I think that uh, a couple things. You know, I, I got more confidence, not less, uh, the more time I spend on the campaign trail. I think people want leadership. They want a path to the future to solving these problems. I think to, to give President Trump his due, I think the thing that he did is he put his finger on these frustrations and they and, and that the fact that the government wasn't serving their needs. And I think that that's been a problem for many decades. And so I think from, from my perspective, if I'm going to be successful in the political arena, what I need to do is essentially make sure I'm connected to the future, not the past, to those problems and giving authentic leadership. And I think the more we're confronting crisis, the more voters 
are going to say, hey, we need serious leadership to take us forward. And uh, and we'll see. Uh, you know, it didn't work for me last time. Uh, I'm obviously considering uh, running again, but I haven't made any decisions. But, uh, but really, the future of the country depends on getting serious people in office who can help solve these problems. And uh, and I'm confident we'll get that. I, I listen. I listen. It's a great message. You're, you're this this book, Superpower and Peril, is a message of optimism. I've encouraged everybody that listens to Open Book to buy Superpower and Peril to just hear a rational voice about necessary change, necessary reform, and an honest discussion about different things. So, so let's go to China. It seems to me, and again, maybe I'm wrong, this is the only thing, David, that the Democrats and the Republicans seem unified on, right? They're both upset with China. Tell us your view of China. You write in the book that you uh, visited China in 1992, been back obviously many times. Uh, Ray Dalio, your partner at Bridgewater, close relationship with the Chinese government. Tell us about your views of China. Where do you think the U.S. relationship is going with China? How do we make things better? Well, I'm not sure we can make things better. The reason I try to go back to that history is, you know, when I traveled through China in 1992, it was rural. You know, I was traveling on this dilapidated train through the Chinese countryside, and I went to Beijing and Shanghai. There was a couple skyscrapers, you know, two currencies, very rural, uh, undeveloped economy. And when I went back 15, 16 years later, when I was uh, in the government, I mean, skyscrapers everywhere, cranes. It was a remarkable evolution in the Chinese economy. And there was a, a bet that Republicans and Democrats, the consensus was it was uh, also there at that time uh, in uh, in the mid 2000s or, or even early 2000s, a consensus that if we engage with China, we get great opportunity for American businesses because there'd be reciprocity in terms of open markets. And China would be a, a more benign, the evolution of China would be benign and that China would become. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I'm a potential not ally necessarily, but not a rival. And and really the opposite happened. Uh, we didn't get reciprocity from China, from China. We didn't get access to their markets despite them having access to US markets. But worse than that, China uh, orchestrated a strategy of, of stealing intellectual property, of, uh, of, of really advancing their capabilities in their military and technology in a way that went counter to U.S. interest. And it was a little bit like this, Anthony, where our interests diverged over time. And then 2014 happened and President Xi came into office and, uh, and that divergence became much more extreme because Xi had a vision of techno-authoritarianism that went directly counter to U.S. interest in the world. And so we now confront a true rival, a true adversary in China. And the strategy I lay out in the book is one of, of leadership. First of all, go to the gym at home, build muscle, build our own capability in our education system, in our technology, in our data, because right now we're, we're lagging. Uh, and the American dream is not available at home in part because of our weakness at home and the things we haven't done. But then we need to confront China abroad by reducing our dependency, strategic decoupling, by holding China accountable for things like uh, COVID. Seems madness that we couldn't actually have a real conversation for years that the Wuhan virus may have uh, originated in Wuhan, in, in the labs in Wuhan that did such research. It seems like an obvious possible connection. We need to restrict investment in China that's going directly to supporting the 
the Chinese military, the Communist Party. And uh, we need to have alliances uh, around the world that are blocking China's uh, advances. And, and if you have any question in your mind of China's geopolitical challenge to America, just look a couple weeks ago. In the same week, two front page pictures, you probably saw it. She in Russia with Putin and the Chinese foreign minister brokering a deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran. China is an adversary. Uh, we need to find a way to coexist with China, but from a position of strength. And that's what my book argues. So give me three things that we could do. And again, these are not short term things. So these are three right. long term, long range things that we need to do as a country to sort of uh, build that muscle that you're describing. Well, the first one is we got to educate our people. I mean, it is a disaster what's happening in our education system. We're 22nd in the world among industrialized countries. We're teaching our kids. Uh, we're not teaching our kids how exceptional America is. They're, they're learning to be ashamed of America and uh, the notion that America was conceived in, in sin. Math, science and engineering is in decline relative to the rest of the world. We got to fix that with school choice. Uh, conservatives have been saying that for 20 years uh, or longer. This is the moment post-COVID where we can really break open our education system and create competition. Um, we've got to have skilled worker training that allows uh, our technologically advanced businesses to be able to draw on American workers uh, to support them. And we need we need to stop the flow of illegal immigrants at the border, but we need to combine that with uh, skilled immigration reform that uh, that advances our economy. So talent's a big piece of it. Uh, that's that's one area. The second area we need to decouple in areas where we're highly dependent. I was shocked during COVID to learn how dependent our pharmaceutical supply chains were on China. I didn't know that. Um, I knew but didn't see it in action how dependent from a semiconductor standpoint we are. 90% of the semiconductors we need are manufactured 90 miles from mainland China. That dependency is completely uh, unsustainable. It's madness. And we let that happen. So that's the second thing we need to do is decouple in areas that make sense. Third is we need to double down on investing in technology. China, there's a, an article in the Wall Street Journal three or four weeks ago, Anthony, you may have seen it. Uh, an Australian think tank did an analysis of 44 critical technologies to economic vitality and national security. It concluded 30, in 37 of the 44, China was in the lead. These are things like artificial intelligence, satellites, robotics, and so forth. Hypersonic missiles. Not. Hypersonics. This is incredible, right. right? Right. So we need to double down on basic R&D. We spend about half of what we spend in 1950 as a percent of GDP. And we need to bring market forces with policy, tax benefits and, and uh, co-investment into those areas of technology that are most critical to America's leadership in the world. Artificial intelligence is, is at the top of the list. Those kinds of policies, they don't fit an easy you know, they're not uh, libertarian. They're not uh, traditional conservative. They are policies that support the challenges of our moment. And uh, and that's what's required if we're going to lead uh, into the next century. Listen, it, it, it's brilliant stuff. I want to I want to test something on you. Get your reaction. OK, uh, we come out of the Reagan era with some deficit spending. Uh, we're producing guns and butter. We know it's going to cripple the Soviets. It does. Uh, they collapse. Uh, again, these are my theories, so I'm going to go with it. George Herbert Walker Bush does a good job not embarrassing the Soviets on the world stage as they decline. And so now there's no bloodshed in the aftermath of the Soviet Union. Uh, he then comes up with a pay-as-you-go strategy, Dick Dorman and him 
They put guardrails on the Congress. If you want to raise social services, fine, but you have to raise taxes. If you want to cut taxes, that's fine, but you have to have something in the budget. He goes, unfortunately, into the Gulf War, which you participated in as a combat veteran, and he now has to raise social services because we're in a recession. He raises taxes. He says no new taxes in his campaign speech, and so now he loses the election to Bill Clinton. But he sets the United States up with these guardrails. Bill Clinton adheres to those guardrails in the 90s, we end up with a $240 billion budget surplus. Uh, The campaign Al Gore versus Bush, Bush number two, is about that surplus. The CBO says it's going to be a $5 trillion surplus by the end of 2010. Gore says he'll spend it on the environment and education. Bush wants to give it back to the taxpayers. He wins the election. He cuts taxes in March. But unfortunately, David, we go to war in October of 2001 as a result of 9-11. It is the first time in U.S. history we go to war without a tax increase. We go to war with the opposite, a tax cut. Bush and Cheney say go to the shopping mall. Don't worry about it. And the deficit spread starts. We hit the cataclysm of 2008. It widens. And let me give you these numbers. George Washington to George W. Bush, $7 trillion of deficit spending. Barack Obama through Donald Trump and Joe Biden, $25 trillion of deficit spending. What's your reaction to all that? How did we lose our way? Can we put guardrails back on the Congress and see if we can right-size that? Well, I think the the headline of what you're saying is that from a bipartisan perspective, there's been, you know, an enormous amount of spending. And, you know, I think we have there's differences of view in economic policy between conservatives and progressives. I I am one who absolutely believes that pro-growth economic policies, which are going to stimulate the economy, which includes tax policy and low taxes, is part of creating the revenue base that's going to support a dynamic economy. But that also needs to go hand in hand with discipline, fiscal discipline. And we've certainly lost fiscal discipline and the, and the 20 years of war in Iraq and Afghanistan contributed to that mightily. And so I think an honest uh, review of history would say this has been a bipartisan problem. But it's also important to look at the last two years. And I think it's fair to look at the last two years and say that um, that spending has uh, has gone into a hockey stick uh, over the last two years under uh, President Biden with uh, the Infrastructure Reduction Act, which is uh, which is an ironic uh, twist of fate to, to name it that way, the Infrastructure Act and the CHIPS Act. And that incremental spending is not only adding to a very significant debt and deficit problem, but it's also contributing to inflation. And that is when you really start to have uh, policy instability because you're combating the the challenge of the deficit and, and and the growing debt with inflation at the same time. And that's the position we're in. And that, uh, that path of spending has been a big contributor to it, but the spike in spending over the last couple of years has added to it. I, I think also that enormous spending that took place with Iran, with Iraq and Afghanistan also has contributed, I, I think quite appropriately, to a degree of skepticism about America's spending abroad in terms of, uh, of, of other places. And so um, I'm someone, as an example, who's a strong supporter of us giving support to uh, Ukraine, but I'm also understanding of the those in my party and, and, and the Democrat Party who are worried about the spending associated with that. So um, so I think we need to address these problems honestly and openly. A big part of it is the committed spending we have in defense and, and, uh, and entitlements, but a big part of it is this huge pulse in discretionary spending, which we have to bring into check. I think it's well said. Okay. In a minute, I've got five words for you. Okay. We're going to wrap this in a minute. So I want your quick take, just a few words on each of these. Ready? War. 
um, avoidable, but sometimes necessary. Okay. Immigration. Uh, it has to be legal and carefully manage the, the borders, a disaster at the moment. Okay. Superpower. Uh, diminishing, uh, needs to be renewed. Leadership. Uh, the, the single most important ingredient, uh, to America's future. America. Exceptional. Uh, the greatest You have a love affair with America, David. That's why you, you'd make a, <laughs> be a great political leader. The title of the book is Superpower in Peril. Look at this handsome guy on the back of the book. Look at the jaw, okay? That's a presidential jaw, McCormick, okay? All right, I wish you nothing but great success, and congratulations on the book, and thank you so much for uh, joining Open Book today. You're the man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Anthony. Closing thoughts today on David McCormick's wonderful podcast. Uh, Dave is a great person and a great leader. Uh, he's got a tremendous worldview. He's been around the world as a military vet. He's been around the world as a business executive. And now he is making his foray into public service. And so he's getting an angle of attack from a number of very interesting platforms. And I love his take on China. The notion that we can disengage with China or somehow make ourselves into a self-sufficient moat without the help of the second or possibly the tide for the largest economy in the world is just nonsensical. Moreover, what we know about world peace is the more interconnected we are, the more interdependent we are, the higher the likelihood that we will have an ability to sustain mutual prosperity, but also mutual peace. And 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 we've found throughout history when superpowers disrespect each other or they breach or they disbelieve in the other or mistrust the other, we typically go to war. Uh, and so it's very, very refreshing to hear super down to earth, very successful, but also uber confident, uh, confident but humble people like David McCormick wanting to go into the public service. And another guy, he's running for the Senate in Pennsylvania. He grew up in Pittsburgh. He made himself a tremendous amount of money. He's a great guy. Went to West Point. He's a military vet. Uh, wants to be the senator from Pennsylvania. Um, what makes a good leader, Ma? How can you tell when somebody's on the ball and somebody's trying to do the right thing? Well, first of all, I think you're a leader. Okay. You you speak well. You're okay. compassionate. You're fearless. And you say things the way you feel. And you think before you speak. You're not a babbling goon. Okay. But don't make it about me, Ma. When, when you watch somebody on TV or you, you see somebody, you know that they're a leader and they care about other people because why? I don't think there's too many people right now that are like that, though. I think you're the one that, that would save this country. I really do. I'm not saying it because you're my son, but I think that you you know where it's at. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you had, if you could have, could run for president mm-hmm. and you had picked someone that was good, the country would be saved. I think we're in trouble. I look at us that we're in trouble. But you're not answering the question. My answer to the question. What, what is the quality that you see? Because you pick up on it right away and your fingers snap. You say that person has the following quality. It is blank. What is it? Authenticity? Uh, well, what is it? Can I describe Trump? <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. You can describe okay. him. Okay. I, th- I think that Trump looks very powerful, but he he's, he isn't because he's like 
he doesn't speak, he doesn't think about what he's saying. He's very narcissistic and he's like ruthless. But if he had it together by looking at him and if you were, uh, say for instance, in China, you would think the guy was powerful by looking at him. But once he opens his mouth, he loses it. But he's insecure, though, right? You remember Mike Facitelli, yeah, Mike Facitelli's mother, Mike Facitelli's mother, who's no longer with us. You know, she'd be ninety-five now. She was like, "He's too insecure." She's like, "Donald, you're just too insecure." He's insecure, Bob. You know, right? Because he has to have the attention drawn on him, and he doesn't know how to go about it. So, why do you think he's so insecure? Well, his uh, his family has alcoholism, and um, I don't know. Maybe he had to prove himself and his family, mm-hmm. and he didn't know how to do it. I don't. Yeah, maybe the father was probably pretty rough on him, you know, and he didn't he didn't have the self-confidence to ignore him um, right. or, or to work around him. Um, OK, so, Ma, why do you love America, Ma? Because we're free. We have freedom of speech and we can we're just free. I love America. Why do you love it, Ma? I, I, I love it. I, I Tell me why. We love it. I mean, there's many reasons why I love it. Right. If you're ambitious and you want to make money, you're a perfect example of how to make money. If mm-hmm. you have the ambition of making it, you can live very well in America. If you're lily lolly and you're thinking of how to make it, but you don't really try, then you can't make it. But you do have the opportunity to make it if you really want to. And you can have a good life in America. But there's other reasons, though, right, Ma? Well, I mean, what did America provide for somebody like Nana and Pop? Well, my, fa- my father had a lot of businesses when I was growing up because he was very, very smart. And I, I feel as though that you have part of his brain in you and also my brother Sal because they were both business people mm-hmm. and you became a business person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. All right, but you get you get a lot of opportunity here. You got to work your ass off, but you get a lot of opportunity. Yeah, Isn't that basically what it is? Absolutely. Right. What don't you like about America? Well, right now I don't. I I think that the mental institution should be open so that we can get rid of some of the people on the street. And I think that the people that take care of them should get a higher salary so that they don't abuse the people that are sick and they don't mind working in a mental institution. And I think that that. That's very important right now because I think the homeless right now is terrible. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. some of them are very mentally yeah, ill. Yeah, it's drug, it's drug addiction and it's mental illness. I do agree with that. All right, just checking with you, Mom. we got to find some people to help us solve these problems to get... They're getting out of control, but you're 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 doing pretty well, though, right? You're driving around in your Maserati. You're talking back. It. You're talking back to the local police officers. You know, you're getting your hair. I love it. How many I'm times so a week? Eighty-six. How many times a week do you get your hairs and nail hairs and nails done? I have. A, uh, I was in the business of makeup, and I I have like an addiction almost in buying makeup, and I love to wear it at eighty-six. Mm-hmm. I'm not that lined yet, mm-hmm. and I wear makeup every day. And I have my hair done twice a week because it's my only vice that I have that I really love to do mm-hmm. right now at mm-hmm. this age. All right. I'm just checking. All right. I love you, Ma. Love you, baby. I am Anthony Scaramucci, and that was Open Book. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and make sure you hit follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. While you're there, please leave us a rating or review. If you want to connect with me or chat more about the discussions, it's at Scaramucci on Twitter or Instagram. You can also text me at plus one nine one seven nine oh nine two nine nine six. I'd love to hear from you. I'll see you back here next week.